Two months ago, a data set of more than 3.2 billion unique username and password pairs was leaked online. Included were the credentials for the Old Smile Water Plant in Florida. 72 hours later, an unknown attacker entered Old Smile's computer systems and attempted to increase the pH of the city's water to dangerously high acidic levels by increasing sodium hydroxide by more than 100 times. Although the attack was stopped by a sharp-eyed supervisor and the levels returned to normal, the incident highlighted how easy cyber criminals can target critical national infrastructure. What could have amounted to mass poisoning is a very real example of what can happen when critical infrastructure sites do not have the right security measures in place. I'm Steve Bell, Chief Technology Officer at Gallagher Security, and this is the Security in Focus podcast a podcast that discusses the hottest topics in physical security with experts across the industry. I've spent more than 30 years developing physical security products with the goal of making the world a safer place and I have a particular interest in the very top end of security where we protect the really big stuff. In this episode, we focus on the importance of protecting critical national infrastructure from cyber and physical attacks and talk to our special guests, Scott Weiner, Technical Director at Atkins in the UK, about what we mean by high security. He describes key aspects of designing a critical national infrastructure project, and he finishes with a couple of concerns that can keep him awake at night. Open access to a reservoir, and you can shut down clean water supply to 10 million people through one incident. What are the impacts of that? Or if I turn, or turn off the dirty water supply or impact that for the same number of people, you, you make a city uninhabitable in weeks. So what are the needs of high security sites and why are they different, you might ask? Well, at the very top level, high security sites need to protect their people, assets and systems from likely intrusion risks, which can range from vandalism and protests from activists to criminal theft, espionage and at worst, terrorism. This goes beyond what we need to protect our typical office building or manufacturing plant. I think the, the key difference is everything is done on a risk-based approach. Less onerous security levels focus very heavily on the commercial uh, return that security can offer or being absolutely uh, dedicated to you know, minimum regulatory compliance in order to you know, get licensed or operate efficiently. Critical national infrastructure and high security they look at the risk first and look at, quite often look at the kind of the larger impact or larger effect of, you know, failure to, uh, to secure what they have, you know, whatever their assets are, and the longer ranging community, national, global effect that uh, failure of security could actually um, bring on. High security is protecting those facilities, systems, sites, information, people, networks and processes necessary for a country to function, the things we need for daily life. High security also includes sites that are not critical to maintenance of essential services, but still need protection due to the potential danger to the public. Civil nuclear and chemical sites are two examples. In the UK, there are 30 national infrastructure sectors, and while it is important to ensure security is in place for all critical assets in all sectors, I asked Scott what three sectors he believes are most critical to protect from national security threats. My top three, you know, nuclear energy is in the top three, you know, along with things such as uh, defense and then probably followed honestly by water. Water is that asset or that 
piece that people often overlook. It doesn't necessarily fall within the high security arena except on certain locations. Most people say, okay, a prison is more of a high security item, but open access to a reservoir and you can shut down clean water supply to 10 million people, turn, or turn off the dirty water supply or impact that for the same number of people. You, you make a city uninhabitable in weeks. If we have learned anything from major events in history, it's that successful attacks and critical failures in security often stem from a lack of involvement in the planning, design, implementation and management of projects. Understanding where all of our threats and risks within the project are from a security perspective. You know, as a project, they should do it their own way. But um, security has to influence even the, the, the general project risk register. So sit down, identify everything from potential minor crimes like graffiti or, or vandalism to major theft. You know, go through all of our crime elements and, and apply each one of those using a traffic light, red, amber, green approach, tying that to some sort of numerical matrix as well to, to give it a score. People don't tend to believe uh, most things without having a, a score to it or a number attached to it. So we divide threat and risk usually into criminal and then hostile. And the hostile side looking at things like terrorism effects, so bombings, uh, firearms attacks, you know, um, blighted weapon attacks, mass riot and revolt for uh, for political or, or other reasons. And for everything along the spectrum, on average, I would say there's probably no less than a hundred different topics you cover. What's your physical asset, your operational asset, your financial asset, you know, your intellectual quite often. Then you look at the people. How does it affect um, people, whether it's employees, whether it's clients and customers, or whether it's the general public. And then Lastly, to include is reputation. You know, how does any event, whether, you know, if somebody sprays graffiti on the side of your building, okay, does that really affect your reputation too much? So reputation has to be included in all levels of security and should impact everything from how you think about surveillance, how you think about what sort of, you know, delay measures you use for fencing or, or for, for doors. You know, all of those mitigations then, every, every topic that you cover then once you've identified it originally and said, okay, this is how severe it is, the next stage is to say, well, okay, these are all the things that we think we could do to mitigate it and to, you know, to lessen the overall risk. Or what's the opportunity originally? What's the risk behind it? And then what is the potential impact of it? And then tie that all together with the fourth one of what is the likelihood of it ever happening? So it's clear we need to make security a high priority from the start and be involved in the planning phase as early as possible. I'm very vocal in, in my insistence that security, especially around high security, needs to be involved as early in the planning process and the staging processes as possible. If you choose a very insecure location to build something or decide to put it in an area where you know that there's going to be extremely high crime or hostile events, then your planning has gone awry. So starting security at the very earliest processes and getting them involved with the master planning and the requirements definition stage is key. Each project needs to begin with a clear understanding of where, when and how a high security site could be compromised. This understanding can be developed through risk assessments, determining the impact security will have on project scoping requirements, deciding what systems, measures, 
procedures and responses will need to be in place and the cost of implementing these elements. Scott adds his thoughts on other aspects that need to be considered when designing a high security system, of which there are many. Key stakeholder identification, you know, who is going to impact when and where, how long down the timeline are those stakeholders each going to be involved, what are your key assets going to be if you plan to build something, not just during the operational stage, but also during your build stages. So, you know, what does your logistics security look like? How does cyber and IoT security impact it at the very early levels? How does, uh, you know, your operational security, things from your vetting to your, your employee base to your control of information, how does that all sit? And then wrapping that together to determine that, okay, well, this is what we want to build and this is how we want to build it. And just wrapping that security layer around so you're not creating deficiencies in between every layer. And it's also the opportunity to create something generically referred to as a holistic security layer. Um, holistic meaning, you know, covering everything, every aspect of security, regardless of what it is. More often, the problems come in, people haven't thought about where the gaps between a hard physical security system like a fence and the ways to exploit the gap between that and, say, a surveillance, CCTV surveillance system or how to you know, integrate um, a door control system and uh, you know, how you vet people or how people would actually use it, so your, beha your behavior security. And it's the gaps in between each of those that are going to be exploited by any, any smart, smart criminal or anybody with just a little bit of access to you know, um, all the online resource that we can have nowadays. Freedom of speech and legitimate protest is the right of every UK individual, but it raises an understandable business concern about the disruptive effect that protests can have on business operations and the potential dangers protesters are putting themselves in. That is why at-risk high-security sites need to have plans in place to react to any potential disruption from protesters, demonstrations or activists. Over the last 40 years, the most, some of the most common things have been uh, around environmental protest and environmental action against nuclear sites because of all the safety processes required. If you get a protest outside your site blocking access or preventing access to the site, you know, that has an impact on operations and therefore on safety. Or if they actually get access to your site, certain functions have to be shut down. You go into more or less a lockdown process in order to protect the different assets. Incidents of break-in and theft can have significant implications for any business, whether it's your local coffee shop or retail clothing store. However, when you think about the ramifications of someone trespassing and stealing from a high security site, the operation of which is necessary for a country to function, the consequences of inadequately protecting these sites, assets and people is more disastrous than most. Obviously the sites have a lot of high value components, so very attractive to you know, the less savory elements of society. At the same time, if they take away a key piece of a pipe or conduit, that's a safety critical system. It all of a sudden shuts down your location. What well, doesn't really look like anything other than you know, maybe a value piece of material impacts the whole of the site. And at the extreme end, Scott shares why it is important to keep security front of mind when it comes to the protection of nuclear materials. Well, the most important or most protected part of a, a nuclear location is obviously the material that it holds. And protecting that is the primary role 
of the security system, protecting the fusel material, making sure the site doesn't go into meltdown, as we've experienced you know, in Fukushima, you know, Chernobyl in the last few decades, and the long-term impacts that those have, or potential theft or sabotage to the uh, actual fusel material itself, and the political and, and global impacts that that could have. And designing all the levels of mitigation for that is well, quite an oner onerous process. We talk about this all the time, but the most effective security solutions really do consist of multiple layers. Detecting an intruder at your outer layers gives time for your response mitigations to be triggered, and if everything is designed well, we'll stop the bad guys before they get to the assets we're trying to protect. When I asked Scott about this, I was surprised when the outer layers he describes are well outside the boundary of the site. What's your last mile? What is your outer reach? When we look at it from mitigation and looking at it from our threat and risk side, you know, that's intelligence-based. So what is our cooperation with police, um, the local communities, where we can be aware of anything that might be happening around there? That's really our first line of defense. You know, somebody can set up right on your back door and uh, no one's going to report it, no one's going to notice it until they're actually in the midst of their attack or their subversion of your site. Mitigation might be we're going to create a community liaison position where we constantly deal with the local community, the local politicians, sponsorship of youth football clubs, etc. That creates a, a feeling of goodwill. Then you start getting into the physical essences, things like perimeter intrusion detection, so noticing somebody from a distance before they actually hit your physical barrier. Then you have your, your physical barrier itself. Then you have surveillance and access control and alarms, and you put that layer upon layer. That's just your perimeter. And then when you get to a building level, it's done again. And then inside the building, you're going to have uh, specific assets that have that same application again. So you could have three, four, five layers of that security where you have intelligence, distance detection, a hard barrier, surveillance and alarms, and then you have your operational overlay of every part of that. And then you have another layer, the exact same thing. So it's an egg within an egg within an egg. But there are other key elements that need to be considered as part of the threat and risk process. One of the other key elements that we do with, as part of a, a threat and risk process, it's common to use something called, well, here in the UK, we call it a design basis threat. So against your designs that you're doing, so once we've gone beyond you know, your high-level strategy and your planning you know, and decided, okay, we want these structures, etc., what is the threats that are actually affect them from a physical and a non-physical perspective? They want to know, you know a two-line statement of what a certain threat is, and that is, that's where it's, it's held. But it's, it's closely associated to your, your risk assessment, and really, they can't work without each other. Essentially, you want to sit down and identify potential attacks, incidents, or failures that intruders may attempt, and plan your response to each scenario. If you say, well, okay, well, I think somebody might crash an airplane into the site, okay, that is where you just put the threat and how bad it could be. Um, usually, something around a... Um, a design basis threat, that's where your very critical intelligence is held. And those documents are usually, um, they're often highly restricted because that is where anything related to intelligence is held. However, the design of high security sites don't happen overnight. 
there are always concerns around whether the equipment being selected during the planning phase will still be current and available when it's time to be installed. Within a large project, once you take those hundreds or even thousands of components and add them all together, you think, okay, it's as simple as putting a camera on a wall or putting a, a door controller on a door or putting a fence up. In and of itself, if you had no other dependencies, yes, 100%. It's all those other dependencies and all those other things that just absolutely change how, how every little piece fits. If I look at a prison project, a prison project from the time the integrator and installer goes to do it, on average, you probably have a year to two years of design process behind it for them to have agreed why you know devices are at a certain location or, or certain measures are being used. That's just an average. On a power plant, that could be five years. You know, on a defense location, that could be two to three years. If we're designing something that's going to be put in in five years, we have to be smart enough in the early phases of design to make sure that we're, you know, the equipment's going to be manufactured and the, supported by the time it actually gets put up. That's what's essential for threat analysis to be an ongoing consideration. Not just a tick-the-box exercise during the planning phase, it needs to be a live document, a continued conversation, so that the high security sites can identify new types of risk as they arise and plan for the future security concerns. Any threat and risk document done well always has to be considered a live document because what we might consider a risk today isn't a risk tomorrow. And a new risk is always going to raise its head. The bad guys of the world are always going to come up with new ideas and new ways to defeat any protections that we design or we create. So we always have to be smarter than the bad guys. Given any amount of time, almost anything can be defeated. It's just making sure that we do it in a smart enough way that the effort is greater than the reward. So, what keeps security professionals awake at night? Some key concerns we hear from industry is vulnerabilities across business networks, losing critical information, and whether their cyber security measures are robust enough. After all, a company's security is only as strong as the weakest part of its network. There are a couple things that really make me think and wonder about you know where where high security is going. Firstly, it's the the information that is out there. There's always a focus on protecting information, you know, from uh, at high security. You know what is available, but in today's world, getting hold of information is so easy. We hear about them, you know, on the news on occasion where a company has let you know drawings get into the wrong hands, or they've lost them, or they've lost a laptop, or a employee dropped a USB stick somewhere with this information on. Really, it's the whole of the supply chain from the original guy who came up with the idea to the guy who's maintaining it uh, once it's been in for five years. That information along that whole piece, if it ever gets into the, the wrong hands, you've compromised your, your system. I don't know that people in general are actually aware enough but they're not informed enough to actually realize what their impacts are or what the impact could be from loss of that information or from sharing that information. Somebody who does an admin role could have access to your whole access control system. Are they aware that the impact they can have to your business? So it's the information and education of those people, firstly. That really always adds a question or facet to the, to the work we do. And secondly is, right now, from a national perspective... 
it's the impact on supply chain of where we get high security from. We're no longer able to supply it at a national level um, across many parts of the world. You know, we're purely dependent upon other countries to actually do it for us. That is concerning. Certain components, you know, there's only one place in the world they're manufactured. Certain materials, there's only one place in the or one or two places in the world that they're mined. And if all of a sudden you take that out of the supply chain, all of a sudden your national security and what you've built up on that dependency for a global market and a global community, that's changed. So uh, when we're thinking about especially high security designs, that always has to come into play. It's a major worry only in the, in the past few months. We've had problems sourcing certain devices to being 100% certain. It's not 99% certain. It's the 100% certainty that there's no compromise. I think that'll be a continuing headache going forward. I have learned a lot from my conversation with Scott. Even though I've been in the security industry for a very long time, I have been focusing on the security of the technology that Gallagher has been developing and selling to our customers. Threat analysis and the design of layered defenses is standard in medium to high security. However, Scott indicates that at the top end, we need to start outside our boundary to consider the local community and how to have a great relationship with them. At the other extreme, we need to consider the supply chain and can we trust all the devices that we are relying on to fully provide protection for our site? And of course, the owners of a facility need to be sure that they have their staff well aware of their part of the security of the assets and observant of all around them, looking for anything that is abnormal. One of the main risks at the top end of security is the insider. Thanks, Scott, for sharing your thoughts about high security in this month's Security and Focus podcast. And thanks to everyone for listening in. Please share your feedback, questions or requests for future topics with me on our Gallagher social media channels or send me an email, steve.bell at gallagher.com. Stay tuned for next month's episode.